Welcome to the Gathering Q&R Podcast, a safe space for young adults to ask tough questions about God, humans, and life. I'm Lane, a seminarian and the young adults pastor at Beaverton Foursquare Church. And I'm David. I'm a Bible college professor, and I serve here at Beaverton Foursquare on the adult discipleship team. And I'm Debriana. I am currently in seminary. I'm a songwriter, and I'm a worship pastor at Beaverton Foursquare. We are so glad you stopped by. What's up, guys? <laughs> Hello. It's the first time that we're doing one of these, and we are in the uh, the old bridal room slash the nursing mom's room. Really purple. Really purple. It's purple carpet. Lots of purple. All right, so um, I just want uh, our listeners to know who we are. Uh, I know we had a little intro in the beginning, but uh, maybe a little fun fact about yourself, stage of life, walk of existence. Mm. Existential status? How about that? Multiple, multiple dog profiles on Instagram mm. are followed by yours truly. And, and who are you? I'm David. Because I can't see us, so... We could, I, mean. I, I am David, and <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I, awesome. I follow multiple dog Instagrams. Are we talking about, like, like Instagram profiles that have, like, like, they're trying to be cute, and they're like, oh, my name's Scruffy, and I'm a golden retriever. Scruffy died recently. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Wait, is that a real dog? <laughs> no. Oh, <laughs> that's mean. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, uh, so, I mean, Puppies Daily, uh, The Doggist, um, those are the main. The Doggist? The Doggist. Does Kova have one? Co- yeah. So, for those of you who care and are listening, my dog, her, her Instagram uh, thing is uh, the Kova the Cockapoo or something like that. She or is something a, like you don't even know it. You don't even know the handle. It's I've, Kova's. I, she runs it. Yeah, she. Oh, my dog runs it. So that must be cute. Yeah. Uh, oh, actually, it's Kova Poo. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, Kova Poo. Yeah. So, so you're leveraging this podcast to increase your dog's social media influence. Yeah, uh, we hope to receive some passive income from Instagram passive through that way. Income. Great. Yeah. That's uh, but yeah. So uh, Kova was named after mine and my wife's uh, favorite coffee shop, Kova Coffee. So Deb, Debriana, we call her Debs. Yes, for my sure. name is Debriana. Deb, Debs for my friends. That was David's water bottle that he just screwed on into the microphone. If you were, <laughs> I'm sorry. Continue. You're really wanting all this. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Deb, Debriana, Debs. Um, yes, all, I go by all of the above. Um, I live in a cute little one-bedroom apartment. It's amazing. Um, love my apartment. That's not all I do in my life, <laughs> live in my apartment. That, but that'd be like the definition of a homebody, right? I feel like I'm starting to become one because, sorry, this is just a big deal because I have a house with a down comforter. And a down comforter was like, I wanted to have a down comforter for the last like 15 years, but never thought that I could afford one. And then I found out that they were not that expensive, but I thought they were like $700. That's so, excessive. <laughs> so this is the stage of life I'm in, uh, getting to live all my dreams, uh, you know. Living all your dreams. With What's my down like? comforter. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. that sounds amazing. Yep. Yeah, well, I'm Lane, and uh, I am married to a beautiful soul named Jaina, and we have a two-year-old son uh, named William, and uh, we also have a dog. Oh, good. Yeah, good. yeah okay. we have a dog. Uh, yeah. Just make sure I can be in your good graces. Uh, his name is Watson, which, funny funny story, the executive pastor here 
his dog's name, Shane, his dog's name is Lord Watson. Oh, wow. And it's a, it's a corgi. Um, so Watson and Lord Watson, uh, both kind of the elongated wiener-shaped dogs. Pretty cool. So uh, basically, we're, we're getting into this podcast now, and this podcast was designed uh, for the young adults that attend the gathering. Gathering folk, love you guys, so glad that you're here. Um, and so there was a space in our, in our midweek gatherings where we were doing like question and response time at the end of like messages and stuff. And it was really cool, really beneficial, but um, we found it hard to kind of segment our time up so that it wasn't, you know, um, you know, uh, way out of left field, what people were asking in terms of what we were talking about that evening. So I was like, we still want to be able to do this, but, um, maybe in a different space. And so that was where the idea for the gathering Q and R podcast kind of came from. And so, uh, this is the first time we're doing it. So bear with us as we kind of go through our, uh, our script here and try to figure out how to, how to do this well. Um, yeah. So as we, uh, respond to your questions, I like calling it Q&R, actually, um, question and response rather than question and answer. That's something that I actually got from my buddy David here. Um, I heard him say it for the first time, and I like that because it implies that we're not necessarily always going to have the answers, or at least not the ones that you're looking for, um, which we take some cues from Jesus in that. Like, people would ask him really controversial questions all the time, often about, like, legality, <laughs> and Jesus would often respond with another question or um, try to tweak uh, the direction of their question a little bit to say, are you asking the right questions? Um, and so I think we're going to try a little bit of that here, and we'll try to also... Um, uh, go through discerning truth in a specific way. So in order to talk about discerning truth, I want to talk about a guy named uh, John Wesley. So John Wesley was a theologian and revivalist in the 18th century. Um, he was a really cool dude because he was really smart, obviously, but he also, uh, him and his followers, quote unquote, people that were in his like church movement, um, which was an offshoot of the Anglican church called, uh, the Methodist movement. Um, that movement still exists today, although it's, it's taken quite a different form from what it was back then. Um, but, but back then, uh, they were really against, or they were really for, um, prison reform, trying to, um, change the way that prisons were run. They were for the abolition of slavery, which in the 1740s, I mean, that was a really early time for people to be rallying against slavery. So kind of ahead of his time. And in fact, so I'm taking a class right now, uh, uh, the, the history of uh, Christianity in America. And we were talking, we were learning about John Wesley and they, they found this like uh, pamphlet, this like leaflet that he was handing out to people. Uh, and on it, it had the method. That's why they call him the Methodist. And part of the method was um, basically the first recorded um, uh, structure for small groups, for like life groups. And I thought that was really cool. So John Wesley just really ahead of his time. Anyway, I stumbled upon a method of his in a book uh, written by Deborah Hirsch called uh, Redeeming Sex, which is one of the few books that I can say actually changed the way I thought about something. I've read a lot of good books and I enjoy a lot of authors, but Deborah Hirsch actually caused, uh, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, a change in perspective for me. And in this book, she features the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And if you're listening, we're actually going to post on our Instagram uh, in real time when we post this podcast. Uh, we're going to um, post on our Instagram a picture in our story that will go along with this so you can look at it too. But if you want to look at it, uh, it the Wesleyan quadrilateral um, has been around since John Wesley, but Deborah Hirsch kind of uh, modified it a bit, and I really like what she did. Um, so there's a circle, and in this circle are four assumptions that we make when it comes to discerning God's truth. 
Um, and these four things are things that nobody can know about your heart and mind except for you. Um, we can see evidence for these things um, externally, but only you internally can know whether or not these things are happening. So the first one is a love of God. Um, if we're going to pursue truth together, we, we have to understand that as Christians, we're submitting our will and minds and thoughts to a person. Um, and that person is Jesus, God, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so um, you have to love God. Uh, you have to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, only you can know if you're open to the work of the Holy Spirit, God's voice and presence and power in you. Um, three is there has to be a pre-commitment to obey Jesus. So you have to have already decided in your heart and mind um, that when I'm pursuing truth, I'm going to submit to Jesus. I'm going to obey him. Um, so if you've pre-committed to do that, um, arriving at truth is is going to be um, a less... Uh, confusing process, I think, because you're you're submitting your thoughts and your perceptions and your beliefs to someone. Um, and then the fourth thing is a pursuit of truth. So basically, this means people can say that they're pursuing truth, but really have their own agendas, right? Like they're just trying to justify what they already believe, um, or they're trying to find evidence to prove a point, but they're not actually interested. It's like a debate, right? Like if you're in a debate team in high school, you get you're just um, uh, chosen to debate a side of an issue without knowing whether or not you actually believe in that thing. Um, we're not here to debate well. We're here to actually pursue truth well, and we actually care about what truth is. So um, not just trying to serve our own purposes and agendas, but actually pursuing what truth is. So these are the four assumptions that are made. Within those four assumptions, there are four methods, maybe we'll use that word, um, to discerning God's truth. And the first is scripture. So we go to the word of God to say, what does God say about this? What do the scriptures, what does the historical documentation, the letters, the, the art of, of, of Christian culture um, for thousands and thousands of years, what does it say about this topic? Um, second is tradition. We have to look back on church tradition and say, um, what have people before us thought about this issue? Is there any precedent um, in church history at all for, for what I'm asking. Um, and obviously we have to use reason as well, um, because in tradition, church has been guilty of doing things that are obviously contaminated with a uh, human agenda, uh, so on and so forth. So we're not just looking at a point in history, we're looking at the overall history. Um, and the early church can be really helpful for establishing those things too. And we use our reason to interpret scripture. We use our reason to interpret tradition, um, because if we just read something in scripture and take it at face value without doing the work of saying, okay, who is this being written to? Um, why was it being written? Um, what, what, about, what about that culture makes what he's saying to this person different than if they were saying it to me today, right? Like if I don't use my reason as a lens to how I interpret scripture, then I'm not going to really understand what it's saying. And so reason is really helpful. And then experience. Now experience is basically what has happened in your life that reveals some aspect of this journey that you're on, this question that you're asking. If you haven't experienced it, it's either because um, you're not fully living out the truth of what you're asking. So there's, there's a part of your life experience that isn't lining up with truth or um, you just have yet to get there. And that's an honest question. Like there's some things you can't know the truth about until you get there. And maybe you never do. Um, but you have to take experience into account, especially experience from loved ones and close people. Like, like there can be an issue that I deal with. Uh, Same-sex attraction, for example, I can theorize and, uh, you know, be, come up with an opinion that I have, but until I've been affected by it personally, 
um, it's going to change the lens in which I see it, right? Like if I have a close loved one or I myself am experiencing same-sex attraction, I'm going to I'm gonna see it differently than if I don't know anybody or if I myself have never experienced it. So the idea here behind Wesley's method is that if one of these four things is not working, then the whole endeavor falls apart. The whole pursuit falls apart. So if I'm not looking at scripture, if I'm not looking at what's been done before in tradition, if I don't use my reason and I don't have any experience to speak to these things, if not all four of those things are working together, my process to discerning truth is going to be inhibited. Um, so I have to be using all four of those things at all four times. And so as um, the, the three of us and whatever guests we have on the show um, are going to be working through these questions, those things are always in the back of our minds as we're, as we're going through it. So, yeah, what do you guys think about that? <coughs> That's good. Great. <laughs> so awesome. Um, Deb, any thoughts? Anything to add? No. I, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I thought we'd just kind of dive in here um, and uh, get into the questions that people at the gathering, you guys have submitted to us. What I thought was hilarious was that when we opened this up, the very first question we got was, are we able to request songs to be played for worship on Wednesdays, which um, that's not what this number is going to be for. Um, you're more than welcome to walk up to us afterwards and say, hey, like, I love this song. Does it speak to you? Would it work for everybody? And, you know, we can have a conversation. Yeah. But, anything by Billy Ray Cyrus. You play it. I'm there. <laughs> oh, my God. I want my mullet back. <laughs> there we go. Wow. Praise the Lord. I don't even know how to respond to that. You don't have to so just I play won't. it. <laughs> well, I'll just move on. Um, so yeah, this, this number that we've given, uh, this is not for um, anything except for questions that you have about um, life, God, uh, and the scripture and, and things like that. So that's how we're going to be approaching this. So let's take a look at our questions. Um, the first person that we got besides the song question was, I'm a very goal oriented person, I guess just because of my personality. And I like pushing myself really hard to achieve those goals. How do I reconcile my ambitions with my walk with God? How can I ensure that Jesus is, my f- is first in my life and my goals are only a means to serving him all the more? Wow, I think that's a, a really, really good question. Yeah, do you guys have some thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. So I think the first thing that comes to mind for me personally is the question to that question. And my question is, uh, why are you uh, goal-oriented? I mean, th- I'm sorry, that's that's a really imp- important thing. It's great to be goal-oriented, but what is the purpose for being goal-oriented? Are you trying to uh, accomplish these things, uh, become successful in order to fulfill a need that you have or feel like you are significant. Um, so I think it really comes down to what is it that you're pursuing in these goals? What, uh, what value do these goals bring to your life? And uh, I mean, I identify personally as a very goal oriented person, but I often have to check myself. Am I, uh, orienting myself around goals that are for the sake of feeling more significant, feeling more accomplished. And, you know, we live in a culture that is very much a a hustle-oriented culture. I mean, there was a recent New York Times article that 
uh, came out in January about, uh, or the, it was New York Times uh, titled, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? And in this article, there was a, uh, there's a, um, a tweet that was quoted by Elon Musk and Elon Musk, you know, being the genius that he is, and also just a very, uh, a very hardworking human being. He, he tweeted out something saying, um, nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. Mm. So this is, uh, and, and he's a very influential person in our culture. He is someone that many people look up to. So here's something that our culture is saying. Uh, if you want to be significant, make a difference with your life. If you want to be significant, you better change the world. And if you're going to change the world, you can't do it in 40 hours a week. You got to do it in like 80 plus. I mean, Elon Musk is someone who who works between 80 and 100 hours a, a week. And so that's a, that creates a bit of a tension for us in that we, we now feel this pressure to, in order to gain significance, we need to put in these crazy amount of hours. And the cool thing is there's this invitation from Jesus where uh, in Matthew 11 and 28 through 30, he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mm. And he invites us into a life of not bearing these burdens on our shoulders, but rather laying these burdens down and following him. It's uh, as Eugene puts it in the, in the message translation, he says, uh, uh, the unforced rhythms of grace. Mm, yeah. I mean, that just sounds amazing. And mm -hmm. um, Dallas Willard, he says, uh, when it comes to how do you grow spiritually? Uh, how do you grow in your relationship with God? Uh, he says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, mm. which goes against our culture so in such radical ways. And uh, you know, Psalm 127, uh, it says, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. And I feel like we as a culture are constantly consuming of the bread of anxious toil. Yeah. We constantly hear the message of, you know, stay up late and work late, get up early, get your hustle on. You got to do more, be more. And we are under this pressure. So if you, if you ask this question and you are honestly a goal oriented person with, with ambitions that aren't connected with your own desire to feel significant, if you reframe it to, um, being, I, you know, I am serving, I am working, I am, you know, pursuing after these goals out of a place of understanding that I'm already significant based on my identity in Jesus. That's great. But if you're trying to work and pursue all these goals and accomplish all these things in order to feel significant, then I feel like there's a misplaced identity there. So I think, again, um, the heart of why we're working is important. Because when we look at the Old Testament, we look at Genesis, um, if we work for selfish ambition, 
for the building up of ourselves, for being like God, as the enemy tried to deceive us into doing. Um, the, the Old Testament describes this as uh, Babylon, right? This, this image of Babylon is, is laced all throughout the Bible, even into Revelation, about man's selfish ambition. Um, the Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babylon, as it's translated, was people literally trying to build their way to heaven. If we work hard enough, man can achieve godhood by being where God is if we work hard enough. That was like the original sin Mm -hmm. of the scriptures. Um, Am I going to be submitted to God and work for him or going to work for myself, determining for myself what is good and what is evil? And so, um, yes, hard work is good, but it needs to be done unto someone that is not yourself, right? So in Colossians, we see Paul talking about this, like whatever you do, do as if working for the Lord. Everything we put our hands to needs to be out of service of the Lord, so when you're hitting the grind, when you're, when you're working really hard and you've come home after a long day and you're exhausted, we need to understand that like everything I earn is actually grace from God already. It's, it's not mine. So I'm a steward and nothing more of like the income that I make, of the reputation that I earn, of the resources that I'm responsible for. I'm just a steward. Um, have either of you, both of you have seen uh, Return of the King for Lord of the Rings? Multiple times. Multiple times. I think we've watched it a couple times together, David. Yeah. We used to be roommates, David and I. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it, Dad? Um, I remember falling asleep pretty oh, much in no. all of Lord of the Rings. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Debriana has officially been canceled <laughs> off of our podcast. She guys, I really want disqualified. To. I've never um, seen Star the, Wars. Are you Can even a Christian? Oh, I haven't wow. seen Harry oh, Potter. I'm not about the multiple movie situation. Well, that's your problem. But I would love, I would love to be. <laughs> Sounds taught. like a lack of commitment. Well, maybe after. <laughs> <laughs> Just sounds like a bad character. Um, no. <laughs> okay, really, Lane? That was too far. I mean, it's, wow. it's all in love. Okay, so, so after, maybe after I give my illustration, you'll want to see it more. Um, so, it, so in in the third movie, uh, we see the kingdom of Gondor. Right, Gondor's kind of in disarray. They lack leadership, um, and Gandalf comes to Denethor. Right, Lord. Denethor, who's the steward of the throne. So the the bloodline of the kings, they've they've walked away from Gondor, right? And Aragorn, who's one of our heroes in this movie, um, he hasn't returned to rule over Gondor yet. So Gandalf walks in, and Denethor's sitting in the steward's chair, right? Which is there's, there's the big throne in the back, and then there's the steward's chair that's in front. And Denethor's kind of gone mad with power, right? He's really absorbed in this idea that he runs the kingdom; it's him. And uh, uh, Gandalf's talking about Aragorn coming back. And um, Denethor is like, well, the rule of Gondor is mine and no others. And Gandalf said, uh, 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 what, oh, what did he say? You shall not pass. I remember that. Part. Wow. That's not that's not the right part of the movie. I woke up during that <laughs> He said authority has not been given to you to deny the return of the king. Mm. Authority has not been given to you to deny to the the return of the king, and so basically, I think we all can can be Denethor at times, where like we really want ownership over our own lives. We really want to determine for ourselves how the kingdom is run. Um, we we get caught up in power, and we forget that we're stewards of everything that we own. And and there's a king who actually is behind us, who's running the whole business. And so, um, when we look at the Genesis story too in creation. We see that Sabbath, the the day that God rested, was the first day that humans existed 
on the planet. So the last day of, of creation was rest. God rested. And that was our first full day where, where we just got to enjoy the gift of the garden and we got to be in God's presence and we got to eat, you know, from the trees and the, and the, and we got to name the animals and stuff like that. Um, and then from that flows our work. Um, not the other way around. Like you said, David, we kind of live in this culture where if I achieve and I work and I work and I work, I can eventually get to retirement. I can eventually get to a place where I can enjoy the weekend, right? Like I've earned this drink at, you know, on Friday night or whatever. Um, but the, the narrative of the scriptures is, is flipped to where the, where rest is a gift. Our identity is, is, is relationship with God. And from that flows our purpose because of who God is and because of who we are. So what, what happens is when we don't, work hard and we're not diligent about our work in in a balanced proportion. We don't rest well. And when we don't really rest well, we don't really work hard either because we, we kind of exist in this weird morphous state between resting and working all the time. So we actually have to be disciplined about how we rest. (laughs) If we're going to work hard and we're going to rest well, we have to be intentional, but they won't just happen on their own. Right. Um, so yeah, as human beings, we're like, we're like built for rhythms. And, and part of that rhythm is, is rest. And I think sometimes we, we struggle with that. Like I've met, I've met a few young professionals who are really proud of what they do and they should be like, they do hard work and, and, and it's awesome. But when we talk about Sabbath, the idea of intentionally setting aside a time to, to rest and to not work, um, they get like visibly uncomfortable and they're just like, well, that's a waste of my time. This, this is, I could be stewarding, right? They throw their own language that I use back at them or back at me. And they say like, I could be stewarding this time so much better. And what hurts, what breaks my heart about that is that this person is communicating that it's a waste of time to, to enjoy the presence of God. And, um, you know, there's, there's church traditions that would say that the chief end of man, the chief end of human beings is to, um, glorify God and enjoy his presence forever. Like that's, that's part of who we are as people. And so it's never a waste of time to intentionally Sabbath, but yeah. Deb, you have some thoughts about this, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I just want to address the part of the question that says, how can I ensure that God is my first priority? And in that, I just hear Yeah, I hear the longing to put God first, Um, but at least from my own experience, I do know that that can be an anxiety-filled place. Like, you get nervous when you have this dream that you really want to, like, go for or this goal you want to accomplish, and you're like, wait, I'm actually supposed to be thinking about God 24-7. Like, why am I not thinking about Him and His presence? And the thing is, is in that I see this split between your life and what you do and then your life with God. And there's Mm -hmm. this like split and there's something that I feel I have been practicing, um, in the last couple of years that has helped me in this because I think there's been a lot of moments of anxiety and like, I I have to put it first or else he's going to whatever that is. And I think that's an important question to ask. If you don't put God first in your life, what do you think he's going to do? And I think underneath there, there's this, there could be, um, I know it was for me, this fear of punishment, this Mm -hmm. fear that God will leave me if I don't keep him first or like that God will stop loving me if I really love my job or if I really love, um, 
like my marriage or if I really love my family, if I, you know, and so I think there's this under this question underneath of like, okay, if you didn't put God first, like, I like, what do you think he would do? And in that, I still see like the father's arms open wide towards us. And I still see, um, that God longs to be integrated into every part of our life. Mm. Um, and so I think that's an important question to ask yourself. Like if you didn't put him first, what would his reaction be? Um, and of course, while I believe that God is just and is our one and only and is the first, um, yeah, he like deserves all of our worship and all of our attention, all of those things. I don't necessarily feel like that looks like, you know, being locked in your prayer closet for seven hours a day, or that doesn't look like, um, being, the, the holiest you could be. And if you mess up, just going back to the prayer closet for eight more hours. Get back like, in your closet. Yeah. But like, <laughs> <a> bad Christian. <laughs> totally. And so I think, yeah, that, that cry of like, how do I prioritize God? Even when I'm like goal oriented and ambitious. And what I would say to that is ultimately Christ is all around us mm-hmm. and to prioritize him is to see him in all things. And a prayer that I read every morning, I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, but um, the end of the prayer, um, it's a Celtic prayer. I love um, Celtic spirituality and what they've brought to the body. Um, Good old St. Patty. Good old St. Patty. But yeah, actually, this is St. Patrick. Um, He says, (laughs) yeah, he says, may Christ shield me today. Christ with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ Mm. on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Mm. Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. And for whoever wrote this question, I would say Christ in every goal or Christ in Mm. every ambition or Christ in everything that you choose to pursue. Um, he's there. So yeah. Preach it. Mm. That's so good. I, I love that. Um, and that's from the Celtic book of prayer. Is that what that's from? Um, yeah, it's, that is where I've read it, but it's just something, yeah, it's a, St. Patrick's prayer. So so. <laughs> yeah. I love that because um, that actually feeds pretty well into our next question, um, which is, uh, I thought it was a good question. Um, if every time we sin, we can ask Christ to forgive us, then why can't we just sin as much as we want to and ask for forgiveness and be fine? Um, <laughs> yeah, David, yeah. you want to start with this one? <laughs> yeah. So when I was in high school, this was uh, 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 my sophomore year, and I was c- kind of barely starting to follow Jesus. And, um, I, I had this, this friend who would brag about, you know, how many you know women he would sleep with, which uh, you know, I came to find out later, he could barely get a girlfriend, but you know, what, whatever he, uh, it's called peacocking, right? It's, I, I guess that's what the kids say these days, but, um, all those kids, all those, all the youngins, <laughs> 
but he uh, was bragging about, you know, just some of the stuff he would do. And he also, uh, I, I went to a Christian school and he, you know, I asked him, so how do you reconcile that with being a Christian? And he said, oh, that's easy. You see, Christ died for my sins. Now I can do whatever the blank I want. <laughs> and you can fill in the blank however you wish. Uh, but Fill in the blank. That's what that phrase was like made for, wasn't it? I guess so. <laughs> but that was his mentality of, uh, I can, you know, Jesus has died on the cross for my sins. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And so, okay, let's, let's uh, submit to that. Let's uh, play around with that. So hypothetically, if you decide, all right, I'm going to just receive the gift of forgiveness and then do whatever I want. Uh, imagine the person that you would become as a, uh, as a result of that. I mean, if you were to, for the rest of your life, do whatever you wanted, no holds bar, and then 50 years down the line, who is the person that you're going to see? Right. I mean, who are you going to become? Mm-hmm. We, as Christians, we often think of sin and <clears throat> death as like this, you know, oh, you, uh, you sin. Um, therefore, you know, when you die, you're not going to be in the presence of God. But hey, good news. Jesus came and died on the cross. So now you can sin and there's no consequences. You could sin and still go to heaven. But that that shows us uh, the consequences of sin, you know, after death. However, the reality is sin has consequences today. Yeah. Whatever you do today shapes you, whether it's good or bad. And sin ultimately is something that disintegrates what is truest about you. It is a disintegration of your soul, mm. whereas Jesus invites mm. us into integrity of soul. Uh, sin does something to you today, now. And mm. I think we got to get yeah. away from this, like, oh, uh, sin has consequences in the afterlife. But luckily, Jesus took care of it. So we're all good. We can do whatever we want. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I like that. I, I can't remember the name of this person and I'm going to, I'm going to have to circle back and, and uh, give them credit where it's due, but it's like a 19th century theologian. And he, and he basically, I'm going to paraphrase. He said that, um, uh, it's not enough to feel guilty. Uh, oh, true repentance is not just feeling, um, uh, guilt or being afraid of the penalty, but being disgusted with the sin itself. And I think um, what's beautiful about that is that uh, in, in true repentance, my heart, my attitude towards sin is that I never um, feel shame of who I am because of the sin, because, you know, Christ took care of that with what he's done. But um, I'm disgusted with the sin itself, not just the penalty. I'm not just worried about like, what's going to happen if I break the rules? Um, I need to actually see that sin itself is, like you said, a disintegration of soul, not just my soul, but other souls. And so when I look upon sin, I should, I should feel remorseful and, and disgusted mm-hmm. with that sin, but never myself, right? Because like, like you said, um, Jesus took care of that. But I also think that um, it's like sex. So it always comes back to sex with me because for like a long time, for like three years, that's not a long time. That's a longish time. 28 years old. 
three years is significant fraction, right? Um, I spent I spent that time uh, speaking to high school students in public schools about sex and pornography and sex trafficking and relationships, and so um, my mind was just in that space for a while, constantly thinking about sex. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was thirteen. Oh man, <laughs> love it. Yeah, well, uh, only Lane was do you in that mental for young adults. Right. Yeah. Uh, PG thirteen. Um, no, that's exactly right. Um, but uh, let's put it this way: let's say that a person um, gets married, and 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 both have committed. Like we are not going to get divorced. Like we are going to see this out to the very end, no matter what. I am committed to you through thick and thin, um, uh, sickness and health. And then that person cheats. One of the people cheats on the spouse. They have sex with somebody else. Um, and through a bunch of tumultuous conversation and, and turmoil and tears, they forgive them. And they try to pick up the piece of their marriage and move on. And then it happens again. Same thing. They forgive them. And then it happens again. This person may have committed to stay with them for the entire marriage. But if you continue to cheat, if you continue to to take that intimacy that you've gifted to your spouse and spend it elsewhere. What kind of a marriage are you going to have? You know, like what, what have you built together in the midst of them staying with you, staying committed to you, always reaching out? What do you have left once you've done these things? And it's like, maybe this person is married to me. Maybe, maybe they're going to stick with me, but why would I want to do that? Why would I want to continue to break the heart of the person um, that, that has given their entire lives to me. Um, we think about Hosea and his wife, right? Like, like, uh, uh, Hosea's wife was supposed to be this picture of what Israel was doing to God, which is just like constantly leaving, constantly betraying, constantly cheating and God welcoming them back. And I don't know about you, as much as I'm floored by God's utter perfect patience and grace, I want to do everything I can to, to please the Father. I want to do everything I can to, to um, look upon his mercy with thanksgiving in my heart and, and um, live the way he would have me live. And, and Paul kind of addresses this, the question um, almost exactly in, in Romans 6. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. Now we can live in it no longer. Or don't you know that of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus baptized us into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, uh, through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. And basically, like, we live in this tension all the time where on this side of eternity, like our Lutheran brothers and sisters would say that we are constantly sinners and saints. Always. We're always coexisting as both sinner and saint, where Jesus has resurrected us into this new reality through baptism and through the spirit. But we still have to, to sit in this tension that we do things that are sinful, that there's a still part of our identity that is not fully redeemed yet. That, and that won't be fully redeemed until we get to the other side of eternity. And whenever we, we, we actively participate in sin, we're acting like our dead selves. We're acting like our old selves. And Jesus is calling us into the new self. That's the, that's the constant pull from the invitation of life of Jesus is don't be like that. Be like your new self. Be who I've created you to be. Be who I've redeemed you to be because that, what you're doing, it's not you. Um, so don't live into this false reality and exist there. Like, why would you want to just constantly be who you're not really, who you're not really are, you know? Um, yeah. What do you guys think about that? Deb, what do you think about that? <laughs> um, yeah, I love that you brought that up because I think, 
Like even what if even if we just used a word that felt a little bit less scary than sin, I think that there's like some fear around that word. So like just like try and use maybe like insecurity where you're like, okay, I'm like having the super insecure day and, and like, okay, actually this happened to me two days ago and I like woke up and I was like, this is an insecure day. And like you just wake up and you're kind of like, I don't know who I am or I don't know how to do anything. And there's this point in time when you realize like, okay, I can either go about my day living like this feeling this intense insecurity looking inward, or I can pause for a moment and ask myself, where is this coming from? And ask myself, like, is there a better way? Like, and I think the thing with sin is like you were saying, it's just like old clothes that don't fit anymore. Mm -hmm. And like, that was, that's been even my relationship with like, we can keep on using insecurity. It's like, you have this moment and you're like, wait, actually this doesn't fit anymore. Like me putting this on as another way of hiding just like doesn't fit anymore. This Mm -hmm. is not who I am. So I love that you brought up, um, when Paul writes about that in Colossians, right? Because it's like you, yeah, your old self doesn't fit anymore. It's not who you are. So, so then I think that leads us to asking like, where can sin actually be helpful for us? Um, how does the Holy Spirit actually leverage our sin? And so I, I understand that sin can be this thing that, um, yeah, it's like we have this unmet need, this void in our life, in our hearts, and we try and meet that unmet need ourselves outside of the will of God. And so I think that whenever there's this decision to sin or to choose to put on clothes that don't fit anymore. I think you can ask, actually ask yourself, what is the unmet need underneath this? Mm-hmm. So if you're prone to, I was going to say prone to murder. That's so intense. <laughs> <laughs> if you're prone to just finding people and stabbing them, then um, what can you ask? What need yeah. isn't being met? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so intense. How are you doing, Deborah? That sounds like it's weird that so that was the first like thing that came to. No, that's that's super intense. But what I'm saying is like grace abounds for you if you are a murderer, by the way. Yeah. Just oh, absolutely. Shout out to all our murderers. <laughs> oh my gosh. To be able to ask yourself and say, "What is the unmet need here?" Um, I think that's where, of course, not sin is helpful, but that's how we can actually pause in our lives and say, okay, let's like remove this. Let's remove the shame off sin. We're, we're all like figuring this out. Um, and let's actually say, okay, how can I use this and leverage it to allowing more dependency on Jesus? Right. And yeah. And then the last thing I just wanted to say, um, again, with this question, like, can, like, can I just ask for forgiveness and be fine? There's this like fear of punishment. Like, that's all I hear. Like, can I, like, it's like, can I just be okay? Like, <laughs> there's this anxiety that there's, um, like some, like something that God is going to do, um, or that he's going to leave, or there's this anxiety of like, what does his punishment actually look like? So the other day I heard somebody saying like, Oh, God disciplines us and he hates it, but he has to because he's a dad. And I was like, whoa, that's a really interesting view on discipline because 
Um, it's kind of like, oh, he hates it, but he has to. Um, and I think often we like view God's punishment as this thing that he has to do. Um, but I, I recently have like come to understand discipline as like the Holy Spirit just giving us a better way. And it's like, it's like we're, we're making decisions, doing life a certain way. And then the Holy Spirit actually offering us correction saying, Hey, like that, that isn't working for you anymore. (laughs) Like, can I give you a better way? And that's what discipline looks like. And so, yeah, like I love what David and Lane were both saying about, yeah, your sin, it absolutely comes with costs. It comes with consequences about, I just really wanted to, to address the part of the question that's like, might still be so afraid of punishment and discipline, but yeah, I just want to encourage you correction from the Holy Spirit is better. He offers you a better way. And so, yeah, that's what I have to Brilliant. say. I love that. I think, I think there's two sides to this coin. Um, and when we look at the story of the prodigal son, for example, right? Like the, this, the wayward son who, who runs away and, and like does horrible things unimaginable to his father after he realized, after he's gotten to the end of his sin, which is like nothingness and there's nothing left that the world can give him that's when he finally realizes like, what have I done? Like, what have I forsaken? Like my time with my father was, as you just said, it was such a better way than what I have done now. And he experiences extreme remorse and guilt for what he did. And I think you kind of have to, but when you turn away from your sin and you turn to the arms of the father, what was waiting for him on the other side? Not condemnation, not even discipline. It was take my robe, of dignity and put it on you. Take my ring of authority, put it on you. Take on my shoes. Let's throw a party. Um, and, and you see the father bestow dignity upon his son. And I think, um, we can sometimes look at repentance as like this dirty word. And we say like, well, if I repent, that means that I feel bad about something and I don't, God doesn't want me to feel bad. It's like, well, actually I think guilt is a tool that the Holy Spirit uses to let us know that something's been violated. Um, like when I cut my leg, for example, that pain that's there, it does not feel good, but it's good that it doesn't feel good because it's supposed to create this urgency in me like, whoa, if that's not treated, if that doesn't work right, then it, bad things are about to take place. And so if I choose to exist in my pain all the time, if I choose to live in guilt, if I choose to live in a constant fear of bleeding, that's not living the fullness of life that God wants for me either, right? If I'm constantly living in this perpetual state of guilt, that's, that's lingering in it too long. That's like feeling sad and feeling depressed about something is actually normal and healthy, but staying there and being in a state of depression, that's a mental illness, right? That's, that's, that's a normal human reaction that's been blown out of proportion and elongated past its due. So in, in a way, that's what shame does is we stop feeling bad about what we've done and we stop, we stop being disgusted with the sin itself and we start to become disgusted with ourselves. And that's what shame is. That's what pushes us into hiding. That's what takes us away and puts us into isolation from the Father. Um, and, and there's this fear that the enemy feeds us this fear of consequence of sin when really because of what Jesus has done, when we turn back to the father, there's nothing but embrace. There's nothing but grace. There's nothing but mercy in his heart for us. Um, and actually the staff, uh, we got to listen to Keith Reitz yesterday, um, in a, in a leadership training, which I think was really profound for me. He's like, he's going to be turning 70 soon. 
And so he's just one of those sages, you know, who's just like doused in, in the wholeness of the spirit. <laughs> like there's a silent wisdom about him where he doesn't have to say a word, but you feel like you're learning something because of how he's immersed himself in the wisdom of God. Um, and he said, uh, I'm constantly, he, I'm not going to, I'm going to butcher it, but he basically paraphr- paraphrased him. He said, you know, I, I sin, we all sin. We're all going to do it. We're all going to have problems. And it doesn't matter because every single day I'm back on my face and I'm, and I'm, and I'm receiving the love of God for me again, which I thought was so beautiful because, um, it acknowledges that he's constantly returning to a conversation about his soul with Jesus and saying like, what can we do? How can we, how can we do this better? How can we move forward? And he gets on his face about his sin, but every single day he's able to, to be right back there. Um, which I just, I love that. I love that back and forth about, um, what sin does and what Jesus does in light of our sin. Uh, let's move on to the, to the next question. It'll probably be our last one. Um, there are a few questions on here that we didn't get to, um, which is regrettable, but we also don't want these podcasts to be like 90 minutes long. So we'll move uh, the rest of these questions into the next podcast. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to them at that point. But this uh, uh, next question is, although the Bible is clear about premarital sex, what do you think God thinks about a couple living together before marriage if they are to abstain from sex? Okay, so... Do you have a something you want to add before I? No, no, I'm I'm eager to learn. (laughs) (laughs) Great, I'm glad that you're submitting to to my uh, superior judgment. Um, (laughs) Far superior. Um, but anyway, so the question about premarital sex, living together. So we have to to ask ourselves again: um, Are we asking the right question? Right. So, right. so if your question is like, okay, so I know I can't have sex with them, but can I live with them? <laughs> and it's like, okay, so what's your motivation here? Like, what do you, um, if we, if we look at, uh, 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 go back to Corinthians 10, first Corinthians 10, it says all things are allowed or uh, permissible, but not everything's beneficial. So basically the idea is like, so maybe this isn't technically sinful. Like maybe you're not breaking one of the 10 commandments by doing this, but is it a good idea? Right. Like, is this actually beneficial? Um, so so let's bring it back to the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So we have to say, check your motives. Those four things that nobody can know about you except you. Are you loving God? Are you pursuing truth? Are you open to the work of the Holy Spirit? And have you committed to obey Jesus? Are those four things happening? Check your heart about that with this question. And sometimes that'll fix it on its own. And then we move to the to the process here. What does scripture say about it? First Corinthians 10, all things are permissible, but are they beneficial? So let's take a look at that. My reason and my experience will tell me this. I know that when I'm in a, when I was in a relationship, when I was in any kind of relationship with a woman, um, before I got married, temptation for sexual, uh, 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 sexual behavior was like always pretty strong. Um, especially when you're like alone with a person, like even if you're just in a car with them or because when you start to get to know somebody intimately, uh, naturally, your souls are drawn to a greater intimacy, which is why marriage exists, which is why sexuality exists. It's, like, it's supposed to be this profound drink of intimacy that you can't experience unless you commit yourself to life and to, to sex with this person. It's a good thing. But if, if we're saying like, OK, we're not going to have sex until we're married, but let's just practice intimacy both emotionally and mentally and like be in proximity to, to each other all the time, but let's not have sex. Impact. It's like, what are you doing for yourself? <laughs> like what it's like, it's like, okay. Uh, in 300 yards, um, that's the limit of how far I can go, but I'm going to rev my Corvette engine up and I'm going to go as fast as I possibly can. And at 299 yards, that's when I'm going to pump on the brakes. And it's like, in theory, 
it's possible. It's not going to happen, right? Like you're not going to stop before you get to that line. So um, my experience and my reason tell me it's just probably not a good idea. And then tradition would say that this has not been an accepted behavior in the church, like ever. Like I, I can't see no documentation of this um, where it's like, hey, you're you're not married yet, but why don't you go ahead and live together? It's it's fine. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I would have to say say uh, to that is um, all things are permissible, but not everything is is beneficial. Um, yeah. Tabriana, thoughts? Every time. <laughs> yeah, I just, I agree with everything Lane is saying. Just for a moment, would love to, like, if you are somebody who is living with somebody and you're not married, um, I just want to say thank you for being in our community and thank you that you, um, yeah, that who, maybe you're actually not doing this if you ask the question, but if anyone happens to be listening to this, um, I, yeah, I, I want to like see your desire for intimacy. And I, I think that in the question, um, I do hear this desire to be close and to, um, have intimacy. And so, um, I would say, yeah, sit with Jesus in that and sit with the Holy spirit there and, I know that the Holy Spirit will guide you well when you ask um, how best to fill your need for intimacy in this season of your life. Mm, that's good. I love that. When, when I thought of this question, I thought of uh, just the, the invitation of Jesus to live such compelling lives um, mm. that people would be drawn to him. So... Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, we get the question of, you know, what is my purpose in life if, you know, I just need to be saved from sin and then go to heaven? Like, do I just wait around and wait to die? Uh, you know, there is a good reason why Jesus doesn't, you know, save us from sin and then like zap us right into heaven. Oh. And uh, yeah, I mean, that would be great. But the reason why we're still here on earth is because we have a job to do. And that job is to partner mm -hmm. with God yeah. in God's greater mission of healing and reconciliation in the world. Because God created the world beautiful, wonderful, and then sin came in and now the world is broken. And so God, because he is so good and gracious, didn't just throw away the world, just scrap everything, burn it all. Instead, he embarked on this mission to redeem the world. And he started with this family called the tribe of Israel, the people of Israel. And the mission of that family was simple. It was to obey God and, and live out his laws, live such good lives around their pagan uh, neighbors, that their pagan neighbors would come to know Yahweh, come to know God. That was their mission, was to be living such good lives that people would be drawn to relationship with God. And now Jesus comes on the scene. He creates this movement of, of disciples, and, and then one of his disciples was Peter. And then Peter, he writes in, uh, in a letter in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, 
uh, live such good lives among the pagans. And by pagans, sometimes we hear the word pagans and we think like, oh, we use it in a you know derogatory way. Pagan literally meant just someone who wasn't a follower of Jesus at that time. So uh, live such good lives among those who aren't followers of Jesus. Uh, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And that's super important because if you are living together, this is why this all relates. If you are living together, how are you living a life that is an alternative narrative to the world Mm -hmm. around us? How are you you living a life that is compelling, that is different, that Mm -hmm. will draw people in? to relationship with Jesus, because as followers of Jesus in our day and age, the, the, uh, the best thing we can do is live lives so different to our culture and, but in a good way that people would be drawn to Jesus. Yeah. 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 That's really good. Really good. Well, that's going to wrap up the questions for this episode of the Gathering Q&R podcast. We're so glad that you're listening. We post the number every week. You can feel free to send us anonymous questions. Love you guys and uh, tune in next time. Party hard. Bye. (laughs)